0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find. <music> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Joyce Salisbury on the show, and we'll be talking about her book the beast within animals in the Middle Ages. I have three cats and I love them all. I feed them, I take care of them, I take them to the doctor, I let them sit on my chest. I clean up their um, leavings, let's put it that way. They live in my house. They've in fact never really been outside. One of the things that I learned in reading Joyce Salisbury's The Beast Within is that this is a very unusual thing, that 500 or 600 or 1,000 years ago, animals were treated in a very different way in the way I treat my three cats. They were property. They did not have souls and were not, therefore, treated like humans. There were all kinds of restrictions about which ones you could eat and which ones you couldn't. We don't even really know if they were named, but they prompted a lot of very interesting questions among people who thought about matters theological. They thought about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. And remember, Christians here, not Jews so much in the Middle Ages, were sort of at sea because the New Testament doesn't say a lot about what you should eat. They thought about how animals should or should not be treated. Again, there's this thorny question of whether animals might have souls. And then there's the pretty obvious similarity between humans, that is, human bodies, and the bodies of animals, and this caused people of the Middle Ages to wonder as well about what animals were and how they should be treated and what sort of relationship they had with humanity at large. And of course, it caused them to ponder what a human was. Joyce does a really terrific job of talking about all of these things, and it's a fascinating journey through the history of mentalities about animals. I really enjoyed talking to her today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Good. I'm glad to hear it. I should tell our listeners that we have Joyce Salisbury on the show today, and we'll be talking about her book, which is both new and, um, I, I, w- I don't want to say old, but it is it is renewed. Let's put it that way, called The Beast Within, Animals in the Middle Ages. This is really a terrific book for uh, anybody who's interested in medieval history and anybody who's interested in, in what a human is and what an animal is, because as Joyce points out in the book, that that is really what... Uh, people in the Middle Ages were thinking about when they were thinking about animals. And I would argue that it's also what we think about when we think about animals, is what is a human and what is an animal and where do we draw the line? And Joyce has a lot of interesting things to say about it herself. And the uh, people of the Middle Ages who she interrogates through these these ancient and, I can tell you, difficult-to-read sources, uh, they have a lot to say as well. And she does a terrific job of elucidating their thoughts and also, I think, saying a little bit about um, how... We came to think of animals in the way that we think of them. So this is really our first venture into um, animal history here on New Books in History, and I was really happy to have Joyce as a companion in it. I think that you'll enjoy the interview. Joyce, let me begin uh, our talk by asking you to say a few words about yourself. Well,
1: I um, grew up in South America, in Brazil and Mexico, and didn't move to the States until I was a teenager. Really? And it gave me a yeah. It gave you me told a... me you weren't
0: you told me you weren't going to drop something like that. I you know oh. I, in the pre-interview, Joyce said, oh no, I okay, go ahead.
1: Okay, and so I went to graduate school at Rutgers University, and it was a good fit for me because Rutgers specializes in social history, and in particular, something called the Nall school of history, which I was fortunate to study. Um, in that school. And what that school does is it says, you know, if you take a really broad view of history, you can learn, get lots of new insights. And so I was fortunate enough to be encouraged to speculate on such broad things like, what did people think about sex? And what did people think about animals? So that led me to to this work, which allows me to take a very broad view without worrying about whether someone's going to say, yeah, but what did someone in 982 Spain think? And I, I say, oh, whatever, I'm using a broad brush here.
0: <laughs> and the people at Rutgers, who did you work with at Rutgers?
1: Um, Tryon Stoyanovich, who mm-hmm. was a fabulous, fabulous, he's deceased now, he's a, a fabulous in all school uh, historian. Mm-hmm. One of the greats who studied directly under Ferdinand Braudel, if mm-hmm. anyone knows. And so, actually, when I got my job here at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, they were thrilled that I was the sort of third generation from Broadell.
0: Yeah. Maybe you could just say a few words about the origins and the essence of the Anal School. I think some of our – anybody who's gone to graduate school in history knows what this is. Uh, but I, I think that many people that read uh, books, especially broad-brush thematic books such as yours, and I've written one myself, um, and who is indebted to this school, they may not know about it. So maybe you could just give us a very short – paragraph or two about what the Annales School, uh, where it came from and what it is.
1: Well, it it came from France, where people and scholars, Braudel was the first probably, um, but there were many others who say, you know, one of the things that you can look at in social history, what's important isn't an event. It's it's these giant movements of time in three parts, um, broad time that hardly moves at all, like a mountain that stands there forever continues to influence the environment surrounding it. And then there's medium kind of time, which um, shepherds who walk their sheep up and down the mountain have a certain flow of time. And then in the tip-top, there are events. You know, oh, someone dropped a bomb on the shepherd. You know, that would be an event. Mm-hmm. But to understand the event, the anal School would suggest you have to know about the timeless shepherd and the even more timeless mountain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have to take a broad view of history in order to understand the headlines. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that yeah, good?
0: Yeah, no, that's excellent. And it's funny, this is something that I was taught myself. I I, I wrote an article recently called um, The Internet Changes Nothing, uh, and I, it was posted online, and, and uh, I got a lot of flack for it. But it really takes that perspective. And, and what I meant by the article was, that you really have to put something like a new medium, in this case, in a much broader framework to understand exactly where it came from and what it is. So, I mean, I think that almost all historians work in this threefold framework now, whether they know it or not. And many of the books that you read, I think, are cast in it as well. So, um, I don't... And, I and think,
1: another aspect of it, if I may interrupt you for a second, yeah. is is that the question that I have explored repeatedly is... Mentalities, you know, mm-hmm. mindsets.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it, it. I think it remains a bit of a controversial piece of history because um, if I study what did people think about sex, inevitably someone will say, oh, wait, I have ten people who thought something different, you know. <laughs> what, who, what do you mean by people what people? And again, in all school, and I would agree that you can make these kind of weeping sort of generalizations, leaving aside all the exceptions.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: you mm-hmm. know, so so this mentalité is what interests me mm-hmm. in terms of what do people think.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Amer- I think Americans especially need to hear about this because all Americans think that all of their thoughts are original.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the
1: immediate thought is something It's like, oh, I mean, this happened... You know, this thought's old. It's
0: five years old. Oh wait! Yeah, right. No, I think I think I had an original idea about once. I can't even tell you what it is, but I'm not going to. Uh, So, in (laughs) any event, let's let's talk a little bit about the book. How how did you come to write this book? It first came out in was it 1994? Is that right? 94.
2: Yeah. 94
0: before the second edition that has additional material. How how did you come to write it? Why? What was your thought process in formulating the research problem?
1: Well, all. Whenever I write something or research something, it grows out of some strange question I have, something that looks utterly peculiar to me. And my mentor, Sojanovich, always said, if there's something in the past that seems incomprehensible, that's actually the key to the past. That mm-hmm. will unlock the mentalité of the past. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay. And I had run across some primary sources, um, oddly sort of bestiality sources, in which a law might say, oh, bestiality in this time period is nothing. There's no penalty. And in this other time period, it's capital crime. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty peculiar. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that tells me that some kind of mindset change is going on here. And so there were a couple of animal references like that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll look into that. But then when I started to look into it, it occurred to me that I had opened a can of worms because, it meant I had to understand what people thought of animals. And then, oh, rats, what they thought of themselves. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Had anything been written on this prior to your book?
1: Um, Not so broadly. Do you know? I mean, people might have looked at laws that included laws about animals. Or they might have looked at literature, fable literature, and kept it in terms of that source. So what I did was to use all the sources on animals, whether they're literary or historical or legal or chronicles, everything that I could read that um, looked at an animal. And Ben said, okay, then all of those things must inform what people thought about animals. So no one had tried to take this broad view. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, I also wanted to take a view of art. I love art. Um, and I thought, okay, if I could see what people looked at and how they portrayed animals—that might tell me something too. And so I actually needed to look for some place that had, you know, a zillion um, illustrations of medieval manuscripts, so I could literally count them. And I went to um, St. John's Abbey in Minneapolis and stayed there a week, um, <laughs> counting, <laughs> counting pictures in the uh, in the manuscripts. And it was very informative. I mean, to say, oh, wow. You know, the only pictures they put in the center are pictures of oxen. Mm -hmm. And so that's the only animal that informed. But after the 12th century, weird hybrid animals started proliferating. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in every place I looked, whether it was literary sources or laws, I mentioned the bestiality laws, or images, there was a change in how people expressed their view of animals. Mm -hmm. So there there Mm -hmm. I was.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I wanted to talk about when... Pursuing a thematic topic like this, I think people today, more than ever before, are sort of losing touch with what it is to collect this kind of material, uh, and that's precisely because of the the search engine. You know, people think you can type the words uh, animals in Middle Ages in Google and get every source. That's not quite right. How do you collect the sources for something like this, and where are they?
1: Well, um, as a medievalist, there's a there's a particular advantage and a disadvantage. Um, Medievalists. the disadvantage is there are a limited amount of sources left. You know, if you're going to study 20th century America, you'll be buried. You can't Mm -hmm. read everything that was written in 20th century America, you know, even if you're good. But in the Middle Ages, you can probably read pretty much what was there. So, you know, so it means – but on the downside you only have a limited amount of information. So mm-hmm. you have to tease out as much as you can from every little source.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, so if it says, Oh, I killed a pig then I quickly write down, Oh, pig, one dead pig, you know. <laughs> <one> pig. <laughs> Yay, I have you know, I have a pig. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, so it's it's just approaching everything. So mm-hmm. what I did was say, Okay, I'm gonna read all the laws. I can't and jot down every one that has to do with animals. I'm going to blast through all the literary sources and every one that has to do with animals. And I like that approach. Again, it's kind of an annul approach because I go into it without any necessarily any preconceived idea. Uh-huh. I'm just going to spread, like, note cards all over. Oh, big uh-huh. decline yeah. after this year. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah no, I see what you mean. So- <laughs>
1: so it's fun, I mean... I like
0: it. Yeah, I was going to say, that, you know, today if you wanted to know what people think about animals, I don't know, you would probably book, read a book called What People Think About Animals. Uh, but, but, Better, um, you'd read my book. Yeah, right. The, uh, <laughs> so let's hope. The, um, <laughs> what, what were the genres in which these, you mentioned lock codes is one of them. Um, what, yeah,
1: that's a big
0: Yeah. A big what, one. What, well, are, what are the genres in which we find information about animals in, in medieval sources?
1: Also, chronicles. People mm-hmm. describe, oh, I went for a ride on my dappled horse today. You know, mm-hmm. so that fables were huge. Curiously, and it's a, it's a genre that people, that historians haven't done much of, with because, well, you know what a fable is. You mm-hmm. know the, you know the fox escaped with the cheese, stole it from the raven. Mm-hmm. The moral of the story is. Either foxes are smarter than ravens, or don't be stupid if a fox comes near you, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. But to explore those literary sources were very important to me, to see how people expressed what they believed about animals. Also, what in the Middle Ages would be considered the scientific sources. I mean, you've got a couple of those. You've got bestiaries, which are supposed to be like an encyclopedia of animals, everything you want to know about animals. For example, in the Middle Ages, in the bestiary, you'd learn that elephants don't have knees, so they have to lean against the tree to nap. Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd mm-hmm. learn all those important things. And in addition, the um, theologians, they were huge. You know, when you get someone like Albert the Great saying, oh, well, the semen of a bear is different from the semen of humans. Mm-hmm. So gleaning all of those little details about what all of those genres said about animals it's really
0: a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I, I want to kind of set the scene before we start to talk about the chapters, particularly. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that needs to be said is that most of these people, uh, most of the, well, look, medieval people were largely illiterate. Uh, let's say that. And also, they lived cheek by jowl with animals. Is that yes. right? Yes. They lived that's with animals.
2: Absolutely right.
0: Yeah, to a degree that we can hardly imagine. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, so they knew a lot about animals.
1: They did. And what's cu- also curious is they both knew a lot about animals, and yet the animals of the imagination or of the science was totally inaccurate. Yeah. So, in some ways, there's two kinds of animals, and probably today as well. I mean, those that you take for granted mm-hmm. and those that you somehow imagine that become metaphors for who you are.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do a nice job of talking about that near the. The, uh, the, the, in, the, in the last chapters of the book well let's just launch into it then the first chapter of the book is called uh, Animals as Property um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that
1: well first let me say that um, to, to start that out is that in fact um, in the middle ages they conceived as, of real animals only as the degree to which it's useful for humans mm-hmm. so they would never say oh don't kill a wolf the wolf has a right to live Mm-hmm. The animal as property is the primary relationship, and if there 's an animal that you don 't own it's you know you can kill it, you can do whatever that mm-hmm. you know so the first linking of humans and animals is the property and what this chapter does is it is it looks like very much sort of the uh, laws and the uh, medieval tracts to tell you how did they use animals so Property animals are those animals who work for you, those animals that you use for, I call it parts, parts and labor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The the parts, I mean, we're so used to being able to wear nylon or cotton. Remember, they were wearing wool or leather, that that every part of the animal essentially became part of you. Mm -hmm. And in treating animals as property, as the the idea of the animal, is that the animal is different from us. That -hmm. was their goal. I should say that, once you treat animals as property, that means it can be your tractor. Mm -hmm. It can be your chair. Mm -hmm. That it's not you. You are not an animal. You are not property. So by the property division of treating humans as animals, I mean treating animals as not human, um, that set the tone of what they believed was the appropriate relationship between humans and animals.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That Mm -hmm. we are not property
0: they are not us. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to ask, in fact, interject just for a second. Um, I know this from another connection, but there were people, I don't know if these the specific people that wrote about animals knew about this, were involved in it, but there were people who were property at the time. How, that is, they were slaves.
1: slaves.
0: Is, is, is there any relationship between this discourse about animals as property and people as property? Was there any tension there that you found in any of those sources?
1: You know, what. Well, I I thought of that, and what was interesting to me is in the early Middle Ages, well, I should set out the thesis of this book first so you'll understand. Please. (laughs) Okay, in the early Middle Ages, the Church said humans are humans, animals are animals, that we're dramatically different. You know, there's a chasm of difference between, between us, that humans named animals, they own animals, they control animals, humans are privileged. But then that would raise the question, well, what about slaves? In the beginning of the Middle Ages, there were fewer. Serfs sort of took over. But they were privileged as being not animal, so they were better off. Uh In the 12th century, I argue, that the lines began to blur for various reasons. By the 12th century, people thought, oh, well, maybe we are sort of animal-like. Then you have the, the opportunity to say, oh, well, that means that some people are more animal-like than others.
0: Uh-huh. Then,
1: when you own a slave, then that's an animal. I see. Because the lines have blurred, mm-hmm. and so then the way the idea of human and animal, you're crueler to some humans.
0: Yep. Yep. No, I see what you because mean. Because
1: the lines blur. But in the early Middle Ages, no problem. If you were, even if you were a slave and property, you were still so dramatically different from an animal that you had a leg up.
0: Right. So let's uh, I mean, I, actually let's follow this tangent. Just it's not exactly a tangent, but I, I kind of want to ask this question: uh, What was the theological foundation of the difference between animals and uh, humans? I mean, they're both creatures of God. Was it the fact that humans had a soul, or what was it exactly? Where do they find the sort of? Yeah.
1: Humans have a soul, and if humans have a soul and animals don't have a soul, there you have the chasm of difference. I mean, that was as simple and as complicated as. <laughs> As a solution. So if animals don't have souls, you know, that immediately moves you out. By the way, that meant in the Middle Ages there are no, no dogs in heaven, no animals in heaven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, no doggy because,
0: cemeteries. right? Yeah,
1: exactly. No, no, no. You know, and so um, if I can follow the tangent a bit more, now there are theologians who argue that there will be animals in heaven.
2: Yeah.
1: And so then they have to do some theological juggling, to argue that, and the the basic theological argument, or the most prevalent one for animals in heaven, is that not that animals have souls, but that God created this sort of web of creation.
0: Uh-huh. So
1: as humans get swept up into heaven, the web goes with.
0: Right, exactly. But,
1: but, but if animals can't go to heaven and don't have souls, then people like Aquinas say, you know, you can't even be friends with an animal, mm-hmm. which eliminates pets. There's no emotional rapport with an animal because they don't have a soul. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: So that's how animals are different. And that's why you can be as cruel as you want to your farm animal.
0: Right, right. Because we were given, I mean, one of the theological foundations is we're given dominion over animals, correct? Is that right, scripturally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And they knew this. So they're like, well, we're given dominion over these things, and they are things because they don't have souls.
1: Yes, and in fact, the most prevalent um, portrayal in art of animals in the early Middle Ages was the moment, the biblical moment, when Adam names the animals. Mm-hmm. And by naming them, you're a giraffe, you're a lion, that means he owns who they
0: are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, no, that's that's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. And you mentioned pets. Did people have pets in the early Middle Ages?
1: You know, one of the reasons I wrote this second edition is because if there, every time I did a talk in the first edition, I mean, people said, oh, your book is great, but what about the pets? Yeah, what about the pets? Right. And I said, no, there are no pets. <laughs> no, the pets. <laughs> Stop with the pets already. <laughs> <laughs> and because, in a sense, what is a pet? I mean, first we'd have to get that definition. And in the second edition here, I have added, fine, I'll give you a chapter on pets, right, that I call animals as humans. Because a pet is an animal that doesn't have to work for a living. Right. He doesn't have he, – he has nothing to do with serving you.
2: Uh-huh. A
1: pet just is just there for affection, perhaps.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But an animal, a pet animal, beginning in the 12th century, is an animal that you feed. So yeah. it gets its food for nothing. It doesn't have to work for a living.
2: Yeah.
1: And in fact, as, as extreme as that goes, I hope we're not doing being too tangential – But in the 16th century, when there were property laws written in England, they said, well, you know, it's not a felony or a crime to steal a pet because pets are useless. So you can't arrest someone for stealing a useless animal. Yeah,
0: that's very interesting. So now
1: then the question was, did people in the early Middle Ages love their animals like a pet? I don't know. I have to think so. Uh You know, I don't know. I I can hardly believe you would have a dog on your hearth that you you didn't feel some affection for Mm -hmm. or a great horse, you know. And so they probably felt affection, but I separate that from the notion of pet. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you know, we have this expression, and I don't know where it's from, to treat someone like a dog, which is archaic because we treat dogs really well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I do have an argument for where that thing comes from. Okay, go ahead. You know, okay. So starting in the 12th century, as we're trying, as the lines blur between humans and animals, then you start getting a little freaked about whether you're going to be like an animal. Yeah. So what we do then, in with our rhetorical style, is if we use an, as an insult those animals who are closest to us—dog, oh, okay. yeah. pig, uh-huh. monkey—and we use as a compliment those animals that are really animals of a metaphor: uh-huh. lion, bear. You see, yeah. so by by using those close animals close to us as a rhetorical style, as the separation, as an insult,
0: uh-huh. then
1: we're able to keep preserve a distance.
0: Right, right, right. No, I see. I see just what you mean. You know, it's an it's an interesting point. So let's actually um, now these uh, these animals were not only things in the law and in people's minds. That is, uh, things of utility, things we used and could treat as property. Uh, they were also things that we put inside ourselves. They are things we ate. Um, and this also yes. raises some peculiar questions as well. I'm going to come to that in just a second. But why don't you describe the relationship between um, humans and animals as food?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, all right. So animals as food, of course, that is, seems a primary relationship. We do, we do eat animals. Uh, but I was sort of surprised at how many um, rules go around that. For example, we don't eat dogs in the West. We in the West don't eat dogs. We don't eat carnivores in the West because that seems animal on animal, you know? So it seems less bestial to eat herbivores. So in the West, with the exception of pigs, omnivores, we, we eat herbivores. Mm-hmm. It's also a sense of avoiding a taboo of, of cannibalism because if you eat an animal that ate meat, are eating the meat it ate. Yeah. So they have laws, for example, on you can't eat a pig or a chicken who has eaten a human. Hmm. And I got to tell you, I got stalled on that. Are there attack chickens around?
2: Yeah. Does,
1: does this happen a lot that you have to pass a law against ch- eating a chicken that's eaten a human? Um, but I guess if, if the chicken got near a body, a dead yep. body, yep. it would eat, it would snack. So, you know, so then the question is, can you use such animals? And you have to let them starve themselves. You have to starve them down to bones and then feed them up on appropriate food.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And then you can eat them. So the question of what we, you know, it's a saying, you are what you eat. Yeah. And this preoccupied people in the Middle Ages a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it probably preoccupied us as mm-hmm. well, by right? yeah. the um, So they were very careful to try to think about what they eat. And, you know... All of these preoccupations in each of these first two chapters, animals as property and animals as food, it's kind of an. They had an ideal in their mind: humans are humans, animals are property, humans eat animals, animals don't eat humans. We keep our lines separate. But built into both those relationships is an ambiguity. If you own something. It owns you. That's how I feel every time I have to take my car in to be fixed. <laughs> I'm, not <laughs> I, I'm not sure who's owning who here, but <laughs>
0: I think there's something Buddhist about that. That you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure.
1: You know, so every bit of property, then you, it owns you as well. You know, so that the lines blur as much as you wish they wouldn't, and it's even more true with food mm-hmm. because, after all, if you are what you eat. Thomas Aquinas worried about people eating pork chops, and then the, the meat turns into their own flesh. Mm-hmm. And then when the human flesh gets resurrected on the day of judgment, did that pork chop you ate yeah. get resurrected? Do you know? Was it the human flesh that's being resurrected or the animal flesh that said it?
2: Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm.
1: you know, the lines blur in those, in those moments, in the, in the great open mouth of the appetite, mm-hmm. teeth yeah. crunching down on animal flesh. We suddenly become one yeah.
0: with the animal. I was just going to observe that um, Christians, serious Christians like these, are kind of in a spot because the New Testament doesn't really say anything about what we should eat. Well, I'm going to return to that in a second. It says we should eat one thing, but and that's a peculiar thing. But the Old Testament says lots of things about what you should and shouldn't eat. You can just go to Leviticus, and it's all sort of uh, mapped out there for you. Um, For those listeners who are or know Orthodox Jews, I mean, they have a nice set of instructions. There's almost no ambiguity at all. It's true that they might debate a little bit, you know, what is kosher and what is not, but it's pretty darn clear uh, about what you can and can't eat. Um, Did did these Christian theologians ever have reference to those Old Testamentary laws?
1: Um, Well, the Old Testament, let's see, the references to what you should eat and not eat they there for cleanliness, but more often they're to define Jews as not everybody else. Yeah. So by eating separately, you have maintained your community in a separate way. Mm-hmm. Well, Christians then said, you know, all that's out of the window because right. we aren't maintaining ourselves separate. We don't have to do that anymore. So then they dreamed up more different rules.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the prohibition, the Christian prohibition, I mean, they had to let pigs in, I guess, because people really liked their pork. So so they left that. And that's, as I said, that's the one omnivore that sneaks in. Mm-hmm. So the Christian prohibitions had more to do with meat on meat.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. by the
1: way, mad cow disease is probably a good idea. Yeah, no,
0: not a bad idea. Not a bad idea <laughs> at all. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's true. But Christians are kind of at sea when it comes to dietary laws. I don't. It is. Yeah. We...
1: Everything's wide open. You can eat whatever you want.
0: Yeah, well here's the thing you have to eat and that is you're supposed to t- you're supposed to um, you're supposed to uh, eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, what did people it's think different. about that? How does that fit into the dietary laws and eating animals and things like that? Did people discuss this? Did you it occur sure? to them that there was something odd about this?
1: They discussed everything. <laughs> All right, so here, here's the thing. You are what you eat, right? I mean, we've established that as a baseline.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so then... If you eat the flesh of God, what does that mean? That's, that's a good you thing.
0: Become, good, yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah. Right, it's good. So then you become God-like. So then your body, has, which has become like God's body, will be resurrected. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the interesting food metaphors and animal metaphors that that I ran through in this chapter on animals as food is hell itself was a mouth that would eat your unsaved flesh. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Both the, you know, so both the images of, of hell in the, in the art and in the descriptions are of a mouth that crunches you up. Oh, yeah. So then hell or the worms in the ground eat you. Yeah. You're, then your body has become meat instead right. of what it was supposed to be, which was not meat. Yeah. So the saved bodies, saved because you ate the blood of Christ, you have become like Christ, your body is indigestible.
0: Uh-huh. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that because it's a, you know, it sort of brings, it sheds a certain amount of light on all these metaphors that I learned, again, growing up in the Midwest, not in a particularly religious background, but, you know, hell is a mouth. And you also, interestingly enough, before you're eaten, you get roasted. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Bad enough you're gonna become yeah. meat. You're gonna be roast beef.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. You get roasted on a spit and then you get eaten. Yeah. So that that's yeah. that's really very interesting. I had not thought of that at all. But yeah, thank you for enlightening me about that particular metaphor. Um
1: a nice image. To-
0: yeah, in your head. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. So anyway, let's, let's move on to a, a, another thing that you talk about, which is a, you know a little bit disturbing, but we're all adults here. And this is uh, animals and, and uh, sexuality. Uh, some of it has to do with animals themselves having sex with one another, but some of it also has to do with uh, people having sex with animals. Uh, what what exactly did medieval people think about this? Both in the early and then the later uh, period.
1: Well, this to me was the was the piece that led me to notice such a dramatic change. Now, some of the laws that I was looking at are penitential. That means when you go and confess to the priest, I did this, you get, here's your penance. So then by comparing the penances, you can see what people thought of the various sins, okay? So in the early Middle Ages, uh, having sex with an animal was the same ranking as masturbation. And I thought, okay, that's pretty interesting, mm-hmm. not like not like we have, Mm -mm. and so what that meant was, is they weren't afraid of losing their humanity in sexual intercourse with an animal, and the animal was just a thing, it was a nothing. Mm -hmm. But then, after the 12th century, when people get more afraid of losing their humanity into the animality and animal world, well, then, having sex with an animal turned into a capital crime by the 13th century. And so, and incidentally, modern times in Dare I say, in Wisconsin, in the 1960s, uh, a man was sent to jail for having, being caught having sex with animals, even though the Kinsey report in the 1940s indicates 50% of people probably have animal sexual contact.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, it's it's this terribly fearsome thing that people might lose their humanity. And and I have to say, I was hugely entertained with some of the laws. For example. If someone has sex with a cow, you kill the person, but you can't eat the cow because mm-hmm. the cow's been... Right. You know, so it's like, it's that concern of, of losing your humanity in animal sex. And interestingly, I mean, this is a, well, perhaps one of our last taboos in sexual discussions um, about, you know, this is illegal somehow. Unsavory, by the way, I think so, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure people ought to go to jail
0: for that. Mm-hmm.
1: Editorial comment,
0: fine. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. I, I understand just what you're saying. It is unsavory, but jail maybe not. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm always interested in the uh, in the scriptural foundations of any of this. Does the Bible say anything old or New Testament about well, having sex with animals? I know it says something about spilling your seed, and that's not right. But does it talk about well, having course. sex with animals?
1: And, and Wendy's. These laws go into effect it's in Leviticus of course mm-hmm. um, if you if a person lays with a cow or something you kill both of right mm-hmm. so the prohibition again comes from that list of Le- Leviticus but like so much with looking back to biblical um, precedents or prohibiting things I mean suddenly you can eat pigs which is also prohibited in Leviticus yeah. you know so you're playing fast and loose with it
0: anyway yeah mm-hmm Mm-hmm. No, I see. So, you mean, do we have any idea whether this sort of thing was common, that is, having sex with animals? Is there any way to judge that? The
1: numbers of, well, okay, if we take the modern, numbers of references are a lot. Mm-hmm. So, if you have, you know, Kinsey saying 50% of Americans, mm-hmm. and it, then in the Stone Age, we have Stone Age drawings on walls mm-hmm. of people having sex with animals, and in Scandinavia, in the almost the early modern period, boys were forbidden to go herd the cattle because they had sex mm-hmm. with animals, you know, because of the risk of se- having sex with animals. In Montana, there were laws against shepherds wearing tall boots, which facilitate having sex with sheep. Mm-hmm. So it seems, you know, so many references you have to assume.
0: Mm-hmm. That yeah, when I, I when I was now. growing up, when I was growing up, you know, again, in the Midwest, um, there was something uh, I learned the expression "the stump rope cow," and the <laughs> stump rope cow was a cow that uh, you had sex with. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I don't mean to offend any of our listeners, but yeah, I that, that or was...
1: to cast versions on the Midwest. No,
0: not at all. But that that there was a name for it, and that's what I'm trying to point out. That that in and of itself, I'm not sure it ever happened. But it was on our mind. Oh, bet that. on that. Well, I, you know, again, I wasn't. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, sure. But but the, the fact that we had a name for it was, I thought, kind of uh, significant. Now, of course, well, I'm not going to go any further down that road. Um, so then you uh, you have some interesting things to say. Now, th- these are um, these are animals that sort of turn you into an animal if you have sex with it. But then we have, uh, and there are also animals that we uh, don't particularly like because they're omnivores. Like pigs will eat them, but you know, again. Uh, a pig will eat you. I don't know if all of our listeners know that, but a pig will definitely eat you. Your cats will also eat have you. A yeah. yeah. Your, your cats will eat you. We we know that. We have that on good evidence. There are lots of uh, tests that have been done. People have died in their houses. And your dog will not eat you, but your cat will. Uh, so well, I think your I think your dog will eat you. Your dog your, will
1: eat you too. There's plenty of evidence. Probably, yeah.
0: Your dog will probably eat you too. So in any event, yeah. but but also we hold up certain animals, as you say, and they did too, as as exemplars, as things that we should. What sort of in certain ways? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, animals as human exemplars? Yes. You mean? Okay. So I have a chapter then. So after moving through these very practical animals, animals as property, animals as food, animals as sex objects, then there are this huge range of animals as human exemplars. And these are the fable animals. You should be brave as a lion, and you should be clever as a fox, and you should not be greedy as a wolf. And ironically, you should not be tame as a lamb because they are just victims. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're all of these animal exemplars. And I think in the modern world, we have those as well. I mean, every Disney character Mm -hmm. becomes, you know, and everybody's teddy bear becomes an animal exemplar, a metaphoric animal that then shapes what we think about ourselves. So if you read these fables and these metaphoric animals, then... Um, you're supposed to learn something. But the bizarre thing is that, at least in my mind, metaphors are an arrow that cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. If you should be like a lion, then that means the lion, then you're like a lion. The mm-hmm. lion is like you. Mm-hmm. And so it's through these literary animals, I believe, I argue, and in lo, this decade, nobody has argued against it or found some other reason for this change in the way animals are viewed and people are viewed, so it looks like literary animals have changed the way we looked at ourselves and opened the way for seeing ourselves as animals.
0: Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. see what you mean. Well, you reduced all of your critics to silence, and that's yeah, a good thing. I yeah, it's a, I love that. It never happened or to I've me. Or I
1: challenge but... them to try. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. Exactly. So there are also a lot of. I mean, a lot of this does come. You know, uh, again, naming practice are interesting. I mean, people are called lion. You know, Lev is lion, and that kind of thing uh the 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 um one thing I was interested in, because I studied it a little bit, and that is uh, fanciful animals or fantastic animals uh what are the that is uh, chimerical animals that are that are half well let 's not talk half human but animals that we know for a fact do not exist today um they had a full kind of um catalog of those didn't they
1: yes, and the thing is once you decide that an animal can be a metaphor for a human behavior then it doesn't matter if the animal exists or not. Um, If a unicorn becomes more important as a symbol of a fierce affection for virginity,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it doesn't matter whether unicorns really exist. What's more important is the metaphoric reality. So once you've allowed the blurring of reality in your mind, then the animal doesn't matter anymore, and so that means unreal animals can be as real as real animals, and I think as an example of that, um, I'll take a real animal, the beaver, mm-hmm. and what they believed about the beaver is it, uh, when a beaver is hunted by a dog pack, because people wanted the beaver's testicles as an aphrodisiac, mm-hmm. and so as the dogs are hunting the beaver, the beaver will stop, bite off his testicles, spit him off for the dogs, and then he gets away. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody surely who's hunted beavers must know that, that surely can't be the case. Uh, and you might ask, well, what about the second dog pet that goes after the same beaver? Mm-hmm. Is there a trick? And the beaver then rolls over indicating, oh, you know, I've mm-hmm. got no testicles left, mm-hmm. so you can leave me be. So all of that, beaver is a real animal. All of that metaphoric weight had to do with sexuality and beavers and has nothing to do with the real beaver. Mm-hmm. So it could be a beaver, it could be a unicorn, it could be anything. What's mm-hmm. more important is the lesson learned.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, does that no, make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. One of the things you mentioned which kind of surprised me was uh, the the lamb, because there's a, um, there's a suggestion in the uh, New Testament that we should be like lambs because Christ was like a lamb, meek like the a lamb. The lamb of God. Yeah, right? exactly. But they didn't think that? They thought lambs were? Sort of...
1: It's so, I mean, that's the problem with metaphors too. I mean, yes. The lamb is privileged. You can be like a lamb of God. By the way, lambs were never inhabited by the devil. So you, you can be certain that the lamb that's on your farm is just a lamb. But at the same time, if you're going to do a metaphor, you don't really want to be like a lamb because then the wolf will eat you and you're just a victim. Yeah. So that that lambs really weren't privileged in terms of a metaphor. You'd much rather be the lion than the lamb.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you want. What you mean? Yeah, well, it's tough. You know, I, always, I always tell people, if you know anything about Christianity, it's tough to be a Christian.
1: <laughs> it's, really,
0: it's a good theory, no, it's but it's hard. Tough to, <laughs> yeah. It's
1: tough to be consistent, Yeah, all. it's
0: very hard to be a Christian. Um, the, uh, the, so the, then, um, then you go on to talk about animals as a, not just ex- exemplars, but animals as humans. And one of the interesting things is, uh, of course, humans are subject to uh, God's laws and the laws of men, but it seems so were animals. They were put on trial for example. Maybe you could talk a little about that.
1: And this is the new chapter, one of the new large pieces of this book, um, Animals Taught as Humans. And this chapter is in two parts, the the pets and animals on trial. And putting animals on trial, again, was one of those bizarre things that happens in by the 12th century. Um, Let let me just give you an example. So a pig uh, was found eating a person, blood on the snout. And ordinarily you would think, good, I'll just kill the pig. Uh But they put the pig in jail, paid the jailer, paid a defense attorney, putting the pig on trial to be Mm -hmm. sure the pig had a full trial, found the pig guilty, hung the pig by its neck until dead, and didn't pay a butcher to hang the pig. Actually paid the larger fee for an executioner to hang the pig. So it's a whole sense of putting animals on trial as if animals have agency, as if they're the ones who had the choice mm-hmm. as having done this.
0: Why did they do and, this? Why, why? Please tell me. Why did they do this?
1: I, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I have to recommend a movie made by this. It's uh-huh. called The Advocate.
2: Uh-huh.
1: You can. It's an old movie, but it was based on all these trials of animals, and so uh-huh. they made a film of it a very interesting kind of foreign film.
0: Uh-huh. Fun. Because, you know, Aquinas, okay, but, I, I remember this from Aquinas. Actually, it isn't Aquinas. It's Aquinas quoting, I think, Aristotle or somebody. And he says, well, the difference between humans and animals is humans have reason. Animals don't have reason. Isn't exactly. That, yeah, but they still put the pig on trial.
1: They did. And ah. so the only argument I can make, okay, so here are the arguments that other people have suggested trying to explain it. One is trying to make an example of the pig. Well, they didn't bring the pigs to watch. You
2: know? yeah, right. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't
1: know. <laughs> so or as a kind of to satisfy the community that this mean pig was dead. I mean, an axe would take care of that in my mind as well. Um, so I believe that or I argue and I'm willing to be corrected that it's only in the 12th century that this happens as a way of recognizing that humans and animals that the lines are blurring.
0: Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. And that only there can you can you sort of satisfy the community by treating the pig like humans.
0: Hmm. That's a, yeah. That's a, it's absolutely fascinating. That one is, uh, you know, as you said at the beginning of the interview, if you want to understand a place, you should look at the anomalies. And
1: exactly. That is very strange. And by the way, in modern, there's a lot of sort of modern environmental issues around this putting animals on trial. There are. I found articles in legal journals suggesting that modern animals ought to have defense attorneys as well.
2: Yeah. And
1: they, when the um, Christine Todd Whitman was governor of New Jersey, mm-hmm. she pardoned an Akita who mm-hmm. was on death row for hmm. having killed a woman. Huh. And so – and that's just so far out there, I can hardly get my head around it. It's
0: yeah. like, okay, a pardon means it was guilty. Yeah, uh, that's uh, confused in a lot of different ways by modern standards. Yeah, but anyway, exactly. yeah, any, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not even going to try to understand that. Um, I, I would be a little bit upset if the governor of Iowa was spending his time pardoning dogs. Uh, but, but anyway, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, the, the, uh, well, but
1: there's another, I have to give you another modern example yeah. that makes it a little bit. All right, so in Baltimore a month ago. Um, a boy was on trial for having his pit bull kill someone. Uh-huh. They found, the judge found, the jury found the boy guilty. He goes to jail. And then the judge started to sign an order to kill the pit bull. Yeah. But the de- the boy's defense attorney said, wait a minute, you found the boy guilty, so that means the pit bull's innocent.
0: Wow. That's it's an interesting argument. Like. I hadn't thought of that, but you know, I mean. Yeah,
1: I mean, you got a kind of double jeopardy thing happening. I there. do,
0: but I mean, I think the more general point is, by modern legal standards, a dog can't be guilty or innocent because it right it doesn't. Nobody has jurisdiction over it. It's property, right?
1: If it's property, you could just kill him. You kill it, but the yeah, minute right. you right, the minute right. you let it in there, that the dog has some
0: yeah legal standing you know, other than property. Legal standing yeah
1: other than property, then the dog goes free if
0: the boy is guilty yeah well this actually brings me to my next question and it has more to do with uh animals as humans and it's one of the things i um i think i discovered in the course of my life i'm not sure uh at some point in my life i noticed that people had started to name their animals things like mark matthew luke and john (laughs) (laughs) and every time i see a dog named something like mark with what we would call a christian name i always kind of take a double take like huh they didn't do that when I was a kid. So, uh, did did uh, did people name their animals in the Middle Ages and did they name them after people in the Bible or uh, you know? We
1: we don't have I mean there's limited information about what animals were named, right? I mean they but the ones we have, it seems to be either more descriptive,
2: uh-huh.
1: Oh, brownie,
2: yeah. blacky,
1: yeah. whitey <laughs> right. or something like um oddly plants, daisy, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Oak tree, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, but certainly I can't, I have not run across anything named after biblical
0: figures. Yeah, no, but this is a kind of, it would be interesting to have some enterprising historian uh, write the, uh, the story of how we came to start to name our animals after folks in the Bible. Because I got to imagine that in the early modern and medieval period, this would have been a big no-no.
1: Yeah, absolutely, would have been a big. Problem. It was such
0: a big no, no. They didn't even have to mention it.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. That yeah. it never even came up. <laughs> I mean, I think it happens if I may speculate out of the range of my book after the 19th century. In yeah. the 19th century, when you have animals and humans being alike because we both have feelings. Yeah. Then you've opened the gate to anything.
0: Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. But then you know, I mean, uh, naming practices are an, an interesting uh, metric of all kinds of different things. Um, yeah, really, all kinds, of, and this is a, an interesting index of secularization. I think. Uh, the, I the, think so too. Yeah, so, 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 yeah. I just wanted to ask about that because of the dogs name, Mark and things and David. Uh, so, so. You
1: know, we're in trouble when the dog is named Jesus.
0: Yeah, is. no. See that? I don't. Never seen. But I, uh, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I've never seen that one. The. Um, so then you, you know, you kind of conclude the book with a chapter about uh, um, uh, humans as animals, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, once you've seen the lines blur between humans and animals, then, well, then humans some humans are more animal-like than others. And this is, you know, I think one of the horrible things about metaphors and about human beings, that once we've decided that some people are more animal-like than others, you treat them worse. And sort of my new, one of my new sections is treating Jews as animals. And um, it makes it, wide open for, um, for being, you know, appalling
2: mm-hmm.
1: treatment, because people, Jews, women, the poor, begin to be treated like animals. Let me give you an example for the poor. they charity for the poor began to be horse bread, which is animal food.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: you can give horse bread to poor humans, and you've already said then, you're like a horse, you're like an animal. I mean, we recoil from the elderly eating cat food. We don't hand it out as right. <laughs> charity.
2: Yeah. And so
1: once you decide that some humans are more like animals, then it opens the way to treat them worse, mm-hmm. which I find, you know, sad, mm-hmm. to put it mm-hmm. mildly. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, and this gets teeth, actually, in the Age of Discovery, when um, Europeans start to encounter a lot of people that are very different than they are, and theologians debate uh, whether these things that look like people are in fact people, um,
2: yeah, whether they have souls, whether they have souls they or not, and how,
0: right, and and how they should be treated, and and again, you know, I mean, there are probably some of our listeners that are uh, familiar with some of these debates, and they particularly happen in the Spanish context uh, when they are um, taking over Central and South America. Uh, w- what to do with these 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 people, and whether they do in fact have souls, and, and and I think they come down by thinking, "Well, yes, they do have souls, and they have to be saved." Um, but nonetheless, the question has been put. Uh, and,
1: by the way, that's when slavery gets big because yeah. you can say, oh, well, okay, they're more like animals uh-huh. than we are. Yeah. All so right. you, can, you can enslave people. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. really, once, you know, so on the one hand, um, I think at the beginning of the Middle Ages, when all humans were dignified more than all animals, it wasn't so good for the animals, but it was better for the humans. Uh-huh. Once yeah. you have this great chain of being when some of us are more animal like than others of us, then it paves the way to treat animals better like pets, yeah. but it also paves the way to treat some humans worse like yeah. animals
0: no that 's right that 's right that 's a, a very insightful point yeah so I, I wanted to actually I told you at the beginning of the interview, or actually in the pre interview, I was going to ask you about this, and i didn 't forget um, I, I want to talk about it because I think it 's an important. Uh, thing for people to understand about uh, historians and historical work. This is the second edition of a book, and it's an unusual second edition because it has new material in it. And I should, again, just tell our listeners that it's actually quite a rare thing for a historian to take a monograph like this one and then revisit it uh, over a decade after it was published and add new material. How did you come to do that?
1: In large part, it grew out of all the questions I had had. Again, that endless so what about the pets? <laughs> <Please>. Okay, fine. <laughs> In part, it was because um, it's been used a lot. The book has been used a lot and continued to be used a lot. That I felt it was time to re- fine add the pets and, and add more of that vision of how animals began to be treated differently. And I also had done a lot more reading on um, how humans were. Treated worse, and I wanted to revisit that,
2: uh-huh.
1: and and the final thing was that I I wanted to remind people that there was a time when we looked at animals differently.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I think that's the thing that history does the best mm-hmm. is it focuses how we see things by showing the time when it was different.
0: Yeah,
1: and yeah. I wanted to accent that as well.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I think that's exact. I think that's exactly right, and that's one of the things that historians are uniquely able to do is to show us that uh, things aren't always as they are now. That they were, in fact, quite different at some other period, and quite different in a radical sense. Not not like they were, you know, different as in what happened last week, but really radically different. They have
1: a computer, right?
0: Yeah, really, <laughs> and, really and radically. And
1: honestly, one of the things that I love doing, history of Mentalité, coming back to the Annal school, is that one of the things I find. Endlessly compelling is how our minds work. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> like, yeah. no, you right. know
1: how we really look at things differently. It's not, yeah. just, it's not just that we do things differently; uh-huh. it's that we fundamentally see the world differently. I uh-huh. think that's very cool.
0: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely do too. Uh, one, one of the uh, one question I had, and I'm like, I guess I'm going to start asking this to all the interviewers because it occurs to me while I'm uh, speaking with you. This is a really fascinating topic. Could you? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but could you recommend a couple of books? I can think of one. There's a book that I read. long, long time ago, by, I think, Keith Thomas called Man in the Natural World. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's about the early modern period, really, I think. That's
1: the early modern period. That's just great. Yeah, that's a great Um, book.
0: And can you recommend a couple of books, just two, three, on this topic that our listeners could sort of read?
1: Well, um, of course, my mind's blanking. But one that's sort of odd is Jean called Schmidt the Holy Greyhound.
2: Uh And
1: so here is a greyhound that was um treated as a saint. Uh-huh. And that's again a kind of early modern early modern book. Uh-huh. Um I'm blanking. I'm sort of You know, there's this mind.
0: Robert Darton essay or it's a book called The Great Cat Massacre. I don't know if it has I've not
1: never... I totally, totally. It's he's another one in the Annal School. And you yeah. know, he he took that anomaly of why do you kill cats?
2: Yeah. And say,
1: Hey, you know, yeah. Here you go. Right. I mean the the problem with this with this topic is that it's fragmented in the middle ages, uh-huh. you know? I mean you could look at whole um bestiaries
2: mm-hmm. Lynn
1: White's bestiary, but then you're just reading the bestiary. You can right. look at the fable literature. You can it's it's just not that easy so so i would recommend to people to get my book and browse the yeah, bibliography.
0: i think that's right that you know it's funny because i a lot of people ask me what to read and i say well take this book and look in the back there's this guide <laughs> it's called the bibliography and
1: give a heavy sigh of appreciation of how much reading i did and then, yeah, and then right. do some yeah
0: no that's there's you know don't don't ask me just look in the back of the book it'll tell you just yeah. what to read yeah so anyway it's been such a pleasure talking with you today we've taken up a lot of your time Joyce, and um you know, I want to congratulate you on the second edition of the book. It's really terrific, and I hope that people go out and buy it. It's called The Beast Within, Animals in the Middle Ages, uh, and it's available right now from L- Rutledge. Um, let me um, close the interview, if I may, with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, w- what are you working on now? Well,
1: I'm happily finishing up um, a fourth edition of my Western Zip text, uh-huh. um, The West and the World, and then I'm going to turn to a biography of Gala Placidia, The Empress.
0: Uh huh. Of the late Roman Empire. Yeah, so I have. Yeah, my, my face is scrunched up because I, I admit I don't know who that is. Who is that?
1: I know she's very cool. I mean, she was the empress that essentially built Ravenna. huh. And and she got um, hijacked by a barbarian and swept away out of Rome. Very yeah. exciting.
0: Yeah. Are there any I literary don't... agents out there? Because I think you'll want to talk to Joyce about this. Because I know that. I think a, they would. Well, you know, a <laughs> book about Cleopatra is at the top of the charts right now so this, this sounds more interesting to me be far behind yeah I mean, I'm thinking maybe this could do it this could be it this could be that vacation home in Puerto Rico or someplace I okay. don't know where yeah all right anyway we've been talking to Joyce Salisbury today about her book The Beast Within Animals in the Middle Ages uh, it's a terrific book please go out and buy it Joyce thank you very much for being on the show
1: thank you Marshall I okay. really enjoyed it all
0: right take care bye-bye Bye. you've been listening to an interview with Joyce Salisbury about her book The Beast Within Animals in the Middle Ages I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.